0: Needed. Sure, it's good to be in God's house today. Good to be with Brother Moore. I want to give a big thank you uh, to our church family, to each of you uh, in the room who helped with this. As our year, this theme, serve Him. We want to serve the Lord. And this year, you guys applied the, mas- the message from last week. Last week, the message was on teamwork. And you guys did excellent with it. And I want to share with you a verse. Uh, Folks, we're such a blessing serving this this week, helping. Just great job working together. Great job working together. Thank you for helping. Uh, thank you for standing together, working together. And Brother Persons preached a great message. All the messages will be put up. Uh, the audio will be put up on our church website later. And he preached a great message on building a band of brothers. And he said, when you're a brother, you stand shoulder to shoulder. You fight shoulder to shoulder. You love and you work together, shoulder to shoulder. And I thank God for men who have that spirit and the men who had that spirit throughout this week and the women who had that spirit serving. Here's a verse that we have that really will encourage your heart today. Hebrews 6 and verse 10. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which you have showed toward his name. And they have ministered to the saints and do minister. You might not have got a thank you this week for some of the things you did. But God remembers what you did. Thank you for all that you did. And God saw what you did. He saw what the others did. Everyone did. And it was such a blessing. Thank you, church family. We appreciate you being a part of serving the Lord this week. Brother Moore has prepared a message. And Brother Moore, we appreciate you. And he came from Ohio with his dear wife. They drove in through the snowstorm and and, uh, came in to meet with us, and and they were such a blessing. I met him at the men's prayer events several years ago, and he was pastoring at that time, and uh, then uh, the Lord led him into a ministry now where he travels and ministers, and he's a real blessing, and now he has more freedom to travel. And I reached out to him and said, would you be a part of this meeting? He said yes, and he is such an encouragement and a blessing. He did a great job leading the singing for the meeting. He is an excellent song leader. I didn't want him to have to lead the singing this morning so he'd be able to give all his energy to preaching. Amen? And so we sure appreciate him and his dear wife. Come on up, my brother. Preach what God's put on your heart. We appreciate you and thank the Lord for you being with us, Brother Moore.
1: Well, thank you for inviting us to come. It's been just a real, real joy. To be a, a part of um, this week, and um, uh, today, uh, how many of you? How many of you came to maybe hear an encouraging word today? All right, I invite you back next Sunday. You probably heard about the preacher who uh, uh, who visited one of his dear widows in his church, and she uh, uh, he sat down to, at her house and he had a a bowl of nuts. Uh, Did you? He kind of, he sat down, and she walked to another room, and he kind of, he hadn't had lunch, and he was really hungry, so he made himself at home and just took a handful of peanuts and just started chunking chunking them down. And uh, so he's eating the peanuts, and then, lo and behold, as she walks back in from the kitchen, his conscience gets the best of him, and, uh, because she's going to notice her peanut bowl's about half empty. So he... uh, He decided to, before he left, he said, by the way, dear, he said, I'm awful sorry. He said, I I got a little hungry. You stepped away, and I got me about three or four handfuls of those peanuts. And he said, I just made myself a little meal out of those peanuts. And she said, Pastor, Pastor, don't you worry about that at all. You know, ever since I lost my teeth, all I do is suck off the chocolate. (laughs) So you can eat all the peanuts you want to eat. They're all yours. Now... You come back next Sunday, you're going to get the chocolate. (laughs) Today, you got the peanut. I'm sorry. Reminds me, of the pastor, a brand-new preacher, had a church, his very first funeral. Have you already done a funeral? Okay, well, so it won't be your first. All right, so first funeral. It's it's very nervous. I remember my very first funeral. I was in Florida at our first church, 1972. That's a long time ago. Cocoa, Florida. And uh, anyway, so they get to the gravesite. And he's nervous and uh, got done at the funeral parlor. And then they go to the gravesite and he's trying to get his composure. And I said, Lord, give me an illustration. To show me something that I can explain to these people what, what, what's really happening here. And so he came in right over to the right of the cemetery out in the country. There was a big old walnut tree. And so he says, That's it. Walnuts. Yeah. And so uh, he was explaining how that uh, as we're buried, that, uh, you know, this is uh, the body. The shell goes into the grave. He said, "It's just like this. It's like this, beloved." He said, "The the the shell like this walnut, like this walnut. The shell, the shell goes. The shell goes into the grave, and the nut goes to heaven." <laughs> and that's exactly what they did. They all laughed. It's like not a good illustration. <laughs> so sometimes, sometimes it kind of backfires on us, but. How many of you? How many of you old timers remember the show? Uh, I grew up watching it as a little kid. The Art Linkletter show. Some of you, all right. Well, Art Linkletter uh, would have these children uh, come on stage, and he would ask them a, n- a number of questions. And he would have, uh, oh, maybe an hour, hour and a half with the children backstage before they came out on stage for the TV filming. And uh, he would have the children sit down, and they would do. Uh, Coloring and crafts and so forth. And he noticed one little boy was drawing a picture, a very, st- a very large picture. And he asked the young boy, He said, What, what, who, who, who is that? And the little boy said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And he said, He said, Young man, he said, Nobody knows what God looks like. And he said, Well, they will when I get done. I don't know exactly what he looks like. I want to talk to you today just beginning about God. Uh, the mother, she had two very rambunctious little sons and uh, hard to keep them behaved in church. And so she uh, decided one Sunday they were not behaving and she handed them over to the pastor and said, Pastor, do something with these boys. And so he took them into his office, he sat them down, and he said this question. Young men, where is God? And they looked at him with fright on their face, and they looked at each other. He said, answer me. Where is God? They looked at each other, about ready to cry a third time. Where is God? And they jumped off, off the couch, ran out the door, jumped into Mama's arms, and they said, Mama, 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 they've lost God around here, and they're blaming that on us too. <laughs> can't get this thing right brother shed i I, as i look back now, 51 years ago we walked uh, on the campus of the dixon boulevard baptist church now i know i know i know what you're thinking because brother brother shed was so complimentary a while ago he said well brother how old are you you you've got to be in your did you say mid or did you say late Oh, I thought you said mid-60s. Okay. Anyway, you got it. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I could just tell the audience my wife and I got married at 12 and 13 because uh, my roots are from Kentucky. And so uh, that's kind of how we do things down here over toward West Virginia, Kentucky. But anyway, anyway. No, we, um, uh, we're we 70. We're pushing 72. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm pushing 72. My wife is 62, and I'm 72. <laughs> That <laughs> we're both uh, we both graduated together from college. That's where we met at Springfield. But over as I look back over the years, uh, Springfield, Missouri is where we met. She's originally from Florida, uh, and uh, one of the reasons why we love that song, "I Will Serve The Because I Love The" in the in the song, it said, "Heartache, broken pieces, ruin lives." And that was the story of our lives. Two young kids coming out of very, very difficult environments. Uh, Not something you'd want to choose for someone, for a child to be raised in, but uh, there were people of faith that were around us and steered us, pointed us in the right direction. But that was our lives. We came together uh, as broken pieces. And we've just sat back and watched the Lord sing a beautiful song through our lives and has just done an incredible work of grace and love through, through, through the tools. We've had just a wonderful journey together. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little <laughs> emotional here. Let me get off this subject, all right? Of the years that we've been ministering, there's many things, Brother Shed, that I, I regret. Uh, churches that I've been a part of, been pastoring. I have some regrets but there's one thing I do not regret and that at our last church in Indiana I went home to my home church in 1983 went back home to the church where I was born and raised I was baptized and called into ministry and I'd been gone 15 years and my wife and I came back and it wasn't long after being back in Indiana to a church that had been established for several years, a church that at one time had averaged uh, consistently averaged over 800, and had a membership of well over a thousand, had big days of a thousand Easter Easter Sundays. It was, it was, and, and that was incredible because the community was only about fifteen thousand people. We were the largest church in town. Everybody knew us. We ran uh, at one time up to about 15, 15 buses. We had a huge bus ministry, picked up about five hundred kids, five six hundred kids a Sunday. And, uh, but there was something uh, that was something terribly wrong within our fellowship. The foundations were crumbling all around us. So I decided that uh, maybe it's time for the Lord to really show me instead of just bringing my experience from the past church and trying to incorporate it into this church, Lord, what what is the What's the fingerprint of this church? What's the uniqueness of this church? How can I and Joan and I help our, our, our church? How, how can we begin to help this church move into, move into the next level of ministry uh, and, and outreach and, and just be the church you want us to be? And I couldn't get away from this gnawing conviction. Ed, I want you to begin at the very beginning. And the very beginning is not Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, that is, preaching through the book of Genesis, through the book of Revelation. But the conviction was, I want you to start with me. In the beginning, God. I said, what? You mean theology 101, like God? You don't want me to start with the Bible, you don't want me to start with Genesis. You don't want me to start with the New Testament or the church or salvation or the gospel? No. My people are destroyed, are being destroyed for lack of knowledge, and that lack of knowledge is me. They make profession, they know me, but they really don't know me. I said, "Well, I don't know how, this is going to go over." And so I got out my old theology books from college. Schaeffer's Theology, Bancroft's Theology, all the old theology books. Those classes that were like shredded wheat. They were good, but they were awful dry. And I never really took much interest in them in college because I wanted to move on to greater things. We wanted to get out and build a church. We didn't want to sit around and talk about theology. But I couldn't get away from the conviction. So I set aside about 20 weeks, Brother Shedd, 20 weeks and, uh, and I preached every Sunday on God. Just God. Because you see, the Bible is a unique book. Than all of the books that have ever been written, it's unique in that you must know the author if you ever are going to understand his writings. You can read any book in the world and know zilch about the author and still get something out of the book. But you can't read the Bible divorced from the author. And so why is it our people are struggling so with just the simplest things from the scriptures? It's because they're getting the cart before the. So start with me. And Brother Shedd. when I did the first the first time I did 20 weeks. And then I realized about every five or six years, that's the best thing I could do for our church. And so I did that every five, six years. We put the brakes on. We're going back to the beginning from the very basics and I'm going to teach you about God. And we do a series. Sometimes I'd mix it up. I'd do like the names of God which which, uh, express, exhibit his essence, his character, his attributes. But I take each of the attributes. We know about 35, 36, 37 attributes. That's not all that God is. It's revealing his word. God is much more than just those attributes, but that's what has been revealed to us in Scripture. And I preached on God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I'd tail off into a series on Christ, the second person of the God, and the person of the Holy Spirit did a series on the Holy Spirit. And it was amazing how our people were like a cow looking at a new gate. It's like we've never heard this before. We never knew this about God. And so somehow, in the midst of building a church and preaching the word, we miss the very obvious, and that is God. It's like in Boston, Massachusetts, several years ago. A Catholic family invited over their family, invited over their friends for the christening of their brand-new baby. And it's a tragic story. In fact, it made the front page of the Boston Globe. As all the guests were arriving... Someone asked the question, by the way, where's the baby? And the baby was found dead, suffocated from the coats of the guest. Coats were laid unknowingly on top of that baby. And here we are worshiping God. And do we really understand and know and have experienced the one that we're here worshiping. And so that's where I had to start. I know that's not where you're going to have to start. You have people that are, that are grounded. But that wasn't our our case, our testimony, our luxury. So that's where we had to start. And one of the things I started with was with this quote I want to put up on the screen, if we could, Brother Dan. And that is from... A.W. Tozer in his book on the attributes of God, on the knowledge of the holy. And this, this just struck my heart and just pierced me deeply. And this, Again, this is several years ago, but still, it, even today as I'm thinking about it, it still pricks my conscience. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the single most important thing about us. Do you believe that about yourself? that there is nothing as important in your life as your concept of God and your understanding of God? For this reason, the greatest question before the church is always God himself. The most critical fact about any of us is not what we are at any given time and what we may say or do at any given time, but what we, in our deepest heart, conceive God to be like now i'd like here like to in just the next few minutes relate how God the knowledge of God the experience of God the understanding of God relates to our faith but let's just kind of back up and this is this is where I landed on this matter of the attributes, the understanding, the character, the essence of who God is. And that's where you have to begin before you begin with creation, before you begin even preaching the books of the Bible, though God is revealed in the Bible, but we're going to pull out of the Bible who he is before we talk about what he has done. And so here is where I personally landed. You can't love someone. And by the way, what is the first and great commandment? Thou shalt love the, thy God with all thy, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy what? Your strength. So you ask yourself the question, then, what perhaps could be the greatest sin that you could ever commit? Well, the greatest sin can only be understood by what is the greatest commandment. If you understand what the greatest commandment is, you'll understand what the greatest sin you could ever commit. Then it is not to love the Lord your God. And, of course, the second is to love our neighbors as self. But in real life, you and I cannot love someone that we don't know. Right? Are you going to love someone you don't know? So to know him, to truly know him, is to love him. And by the way, You're not going to trust somebody you don't know. You only trust the people you know. Come on, help me with this. You don't love people that you don't know, yes or no. And you're not going to trust someone until you really know them. And so, I know this is very elementary. But to know him, you'll trust him. And to know him, you will love him. And if you love him, you'll trust him. And if you trust him, you'll obey him and you'll serve him. Now, what was I trying to do as a pastor? I was trying my hardest to get people to obey the Lord, to serve the Lord, who in their heart of hearts really didn't love the Lord. He's told to Peter, Peter, I've been with you for three plus years. Do you love me? Well, Lord, you know, I'm very fond of you. No, no, Peter. Do you love me? You see the church doesn't have a service problem, a obedience problem, they have a love problem. To know him is to love him. So we go beyond just to love, it's to know him. And the reason why we struggle with faith and trust. You know I just I just wish you may say it in your heart of hearts, I just wish I could really trust the Lord. No, 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 no. Stop right there. That's just the that's just the fruit of something very deeper in the root. The trust problem is because there is an misunderstanding or even a misapplication of who he is. You don't know him. If you know Him, you're going to trust him, if you know him, you're going to love him. But we we tend to go after the symptoms And not the cause. We look for the fruit, the manifestation and say, Lord, what is the underlying problem here? And in my case, and in the church I pastored, the case was we thought we knew God. The God that we had imagined him to be was not the God who he really was revealed in Scripture. So once you know the truth about God, you know what happens? You get set free. Those who know the truth will be set free. So, that's where we started. So, the most revealing thing about any church is our concept of God. So, here we go. Hebrews 11, verse 6. Now, here is the connection with faith and our knowledge of God. Notice what the writer says. But without faith, but without faith, it isn't. What's the next word? Somebody tell me. What's the next word? Impossible. Were you at the prayer advance by chance when David Gibbs was there? Do you remember, uh, now, do you know how long ago, what year that was back years ago, you were at the advance? Well, that's okay. But David Gibbs, there was one of the advances that he preached to us and challenged us to pray impossible prayers. He said, why would you settle knowing how great God is, how glorious God is, how powerful God is, and how much God loves faith? Why would you settle to pray for God to do something great when you can ask Him to do something impossible? Why settle for greatness? That nearly knocked me off the pew. I've been praying for God to do a great work. God, do a great work. God, do a great work. And then David Gibbs said, That's so puny. That's not even on God's radar. Why don't you ask for something? Say it with me. Impossible. To do the impossible. Start you a prayer. So Harold, Harold Vaughn started this thing of impossible prayer list. He started putting those out. Here's a list called impossible prayers. Put down people, situations, whatever. Start listing and, and, and claiming it every, every time you think to pray. The, the, your impossible prayer list. Because without faith, it's impossible to please. And, and he that cometh to God. So in other words. Coming to God, you must believe. You must believe that he is who he says he is. And so in, in order to do something, you have to know him. You have to know him. You have to, you have to understand him. You have to experience him. In Chronicles, I think it's sixteen nine. One of my favorite passages in the entire Bible that I repeat to myself, not all the time, but on a regular basis. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro over the face of the earth that he might show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are perfect toward him. Now, a perfect heart is not a sinless heart. Can anybody say amen to that? <laughs> not talking about sinlessness. He's not talking about blamelessness. He's talking about a heart that fully believes, fully trusts, fully commits, that understands him, and that is willing to believe him. I'm just looking for some believing hearts that really believe I am who I say I, that I am, who will believe me. And his eyes are just scanning the earth just to find somebody's heart that want to know him that want to love him that want to trust him and from that will flow our obedience our fellowship and our love excuse me our service and our obedience so without faith it's impossible pleasing he that comes to God must believe that he is and something else he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek after him, seeking for him. You know, One of the best examples is a man by the name of Adoniram Judson. He was the very first Baptist missionary sent from America to the foreign country. He went to Burma in the late 1700s and uh, translated the Bible into Burmese. Saw very little fruit, but here we are, over 300-plus odd years, and we're still talking about him, Adner And Judson. We studied him. We had to read his story when I was in college in mission. our missions class. Uh, pastors use many illustrations about Adner and Judson. Buried two wives on the mission field. Both of his wives died of diseases. Had eight children. Only one was still living when Judson died in 1870. 18- 36. Lost seven children on the field. Judson was arrested. Burmese, Burma is down in the southern region of of, uh, India. The continent of Asia. And uh, he was arrested and while he was being toted off to jail as he was walking through the streets, his mockers said, hey Judson, Hey Judson! Now what are you going to do, Judson? What is now the plight of your future, Justin? Judson, and the famous quote, as he as he hollered back to the audience or hollered back to the mockers, he said, "Ah, he said, my future is as bright as the promises of God." However bright they are, that's how bright my future is. Now, Judson had no idea what was going to happen in the centuries later from his life and from his ministry there in Burma. But that's a man of faith. Now, this quote, Dr. A.B. he said, faith, who also was deeply touched by Judson's life, who was the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance missionary movement, A.B. Simpson. He said, faith turns every promise into a prophecy. You know what a prophecy is, a, a foretelling, a declaration of something to come, something predicted with assurance that it's a certainty of a future event. It will happen. Faith turns every promise into a prophecy, and we can move ahead with certainty that it will come to pass because God does not lie. And God's people can say, faith is simply this faith is simply the conviction that God does not lie that's what faith is God cannot lie John 20 and 29 Jesus said unto them Thomas Thomas, at the resurrection he appeared to them remember Thomas wasn't there the first day that Jesus appeared in the upper room eight days later on the Lord's day first day of the week he appeared the following week because thou hast Seen me now. You remember, Thomas fell down at his knees. He saw his hands. He saw the side. And he said, my Lord and my God. He said, now, Thomas, you've seen me. And because you've seen me, you have believed. But blessed are they. That's you and I. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Wow. Augustine was a fourth century theologian. And here's what he said. Faith is to believe on the word of God. For that which you do not see, the reward of this faith is to see and to enjoy what you do believe. Thomas Morton was a a 17th century Puritan when he wrote, We do not first see and then act. That's what we normally think. Well, I act, you know, we we, we, we first... as, he, as Thomas said, Lord, if, if I see, then I'll believe. No, we do not first see and then act. We act and then see. This is why the one who waits to see clearly before they ever will believe never start the journey. Now, Manley Beasley, one of my favorite Baptist preachers, he's in heaven now. I had an opportunity to hear him in 1983 at a conference and how his life so impacted my life. But Manley Beasley who was a man who had seven terminal illnesses and defied all of the doctors that ever treated him because he lived 25 years beyond that he was supposed to live. Unbelievable man of faith. But here's what he said. This is what his conviction was. Faith is believing. Well, why don't you, can you see it? You want to read it together? Let's read it together. Faith is believing as if it were so, even when it doesn't appear to be so, in order for that it to be so, Because with God, it's already so. (laughs) Faith is learning to put your hand on spiritual blessings that are in Christ and say, that's mine. It's mine. I have what God says I have. I can do what God says I can do. That's what faith is. And we're not talking about this wild word of faith stuff that's going on today. And many of you have heard about. I'm sure if you've watched anything on Christian television, you're better off if you don't but this word faith movement that you know if you uh, have your, your words your words uh, uh, your words of faith are, are like a force they have power you can create your own reality in other words you can name it and or you name it and claim it how many of you have heard about the name and claim it movement all right most of you have now this is not what we're talking about here because that's putting faith in faith in reality faith becomes their god because they totally deny the sovereignty of God that's the faith movement That many televangelists have have bought into. And it's heresy. And it abuses the true beauty of what faith really is. Harold Vaughn, I love what Harold said in one of his books. He wrote, uh, I think it's Oasis. He said, faith is expectant. Faith is expectant. Asking for rain is called prayer. Carrying an umbrella is faith. Uh, so when, when faith goes to the supermarket, it always carries a basket. When faith prays for rain, it always carries an umbrella. I remember old Dr. Van Savner. I don't know if you ever read anything by Van Savner. Oh, Van Savner, he uh, he was in a meeting. This was many, many years ago down in southern Texas, and they were having a horrible drought, which that which of course they've heard had those of late as well as California, A terrible drought, and the church asked during the revival meeting if they could have one night just to pray for rain. They'd gone for weeks and weeks and weeks. Things were just dried up. It's horrible. So they prayed for rain. They actually called a, they called a meeting during the revival of their church for the community to come together. And many people in the community, other churches came. They had a prayer meeting for God to intervene and have mercy on them to bring rain. And the next night during the revival meeting. Vance Amber got in the pulpit and rebuked the whole church because nobody brought an umbrella. (laughs) How many of you think they were praying in faith? Not a one of them. Not a one. You say, well, that's kind of being judgmental. Well, I think he got the point across. Philip Brooks wrote, God will send no wind to drive the ship if we have no faith to hoist the sails. So... I just want to ask you a few questions here, and then we're going to go really, really quick. Then I'm going to nail this down. Hopefully, uh, that uh, uh, lunch won't win out over the sermon, okay? Uh, that In other words, we won't start having this growling sensation going on. Uh, I hope I'm not the one who has it. First, I'm going to ask you some questions, okay? I want to ask you some simple questions because we're going to, we're going to focus in just when you talk about God and faith, about the omniscience of God. When I talk about omniscience... What comes to your mind when you hear the word omniscience? Anyone? All-knowing, meaning omni-knowledge. Uh, all-knowing. God is all-knowing. God knows everything actual. God knows everything that would be potential. I'm, go, I'm not going to go into the, the omniscience of God, but just, just thinking about God who is an all-knowing God. So let me ask you this question. Number one, which, which, which came first? The miracle of sight... Or beautiful scenes and sunsets, which of those came first in creation? Which, just, just, just answer these really, really quickly for me, right? Which came first? Beautiful sights were before our eyes? You mean God created beautiful sights before he ever created our eyes? So, or did he create our eyes and then give us beautiful sights? Okay, which came first? By the way, the answer is number one. God created the sights, and then he gave us the eyes to see it. Does that make sense? Man was created on what day? Number six. Did God, uh, so which came first, the miracle of hearing or the beautiful sounds that we hear in life? Which came first? All right. Which came first, the miracle of air or the lungs to breathe in that air? Which came first? Which came first, delicious foods? Oh, not a thing to talk about on a Sunday morning at 12 noon. Delicious foods and springs of water or hunger and thirst? Come on, real quick. Which came first? The foods and the water. Which came first? Our birth or the story of our lives? Psalm 139, verse 16. I won't read the whole verse to you, but basically this David, as he looked back, he realized God wrote his whole story before he was ever born and put it in a book. And not one time did it ever do injustice to God's sovereignties and, and God's sovereignty that's the oversight of our life and never did it once violate David's free will. You say, but how is it that you can't do injustice to sovereignty and no injustice to free will? How does that happen? He's God. Amen. I don't have to figure it out. I can just enjoy it and believe it. Amen? Amen. So God wrote it, and it turned out exactly the way it, he wrote it. I can't believe it. Because you know this. You know this. Well, well, let me ask you the next next question. Next next, next question. Which, which came first, the word or the writers of the Bible? Oh, you're well taught. You see, before you see before Moses penned Genesis one one. By the way, Moses penned the first five books of the Bible before Moses penned. scrolled, I don't know how he did it. Genesis one one, Revelation twenty two twenty one was already written. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Psalm 119-89. Which came first, the first Adam or the last Adam? Which came first? I know it's a little tricky question here. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us which of those were first. First Adam or the. Who, who said that? Who's the last Adam? Jesus Christ. He's the last Adam. Because remember, he was, he, they, they, were, they were going to, the, the Jews, the Pharisees were going to stone him because he told them that he was before Abraham. Well, I got good news for you, Jews. Uh, Pharisees, he not only was before Abraham, he was even before Adam. He was the first. So, which came first? The fallen sinner or the redeeming Savior? Which of those came first? Was Jesus' death on the cross an afterthought? Was it like plan B? Or did God foresee in his omniscience? That's why in the book of Revelation 13 and 80, it is written, But Jesus was the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Before Genesis 1-1, Jesus had already made the commitment to come to earth and to shed his own blood. So which came first, the sinner or the Savior? The Savior. Are you kind of getting the gist of this? So let me ask you this question. Let's Let's get it down to where we kind of live. Which came first, your battles or His victory. You mean the victory has. Are you telling me that you will never fight a battle that Christ has not already won the victory? Is that what you're telling me? You see why I'm shaking my head, but I'm not really sure it's in my heart. (laughs) I'm saying because that's supposed to be the right answer and I want to get an A on the test. (laughs) No, no, no. There's never a fight, there's never a battle you and I will ever face that Jesus has not already secured our victory. We are not fighting and striving for a victory in this area, over this situation. We are fighting from the ground of already being in victory. That's why when the songwriter wrote the song that we all love to sing, Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior, You see, that song is written, victory in the present tense. How many of you love victory in the present tense? Yes. We're not talking about future tense. Obviously, yes, the past. Christ won the victory for us at the cross, at the resurrection, in his ascension, and as he intercedes for us from his high priestly throne. Yes, yes, yes. But now, right here and in the future, every single battle we face. Thanks be to God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ, 2 Corinthians 2.14. Victory is not only believing that Jesus has now done it all, but that he is doing it all now. A single act of faith gets you to know into, gets you into victory, but then the attitude of faith will keep you there. So how this helped me personally, it dawned on me one day that I, All of my enemies. Satan. I'm never again going to address Satan other than he is a defeated foe. When I think of Satan, first thought, defeat. He's been conquered. His head has been bruised at the cross. Yes, the sentence has been passed. And for God's sovereign purposes, he's still out on bail. But the sins, he's been given a life sentence in hell. It's already, he's already been judged. Amen, church? He's already been judged. Now, okay, I don't understand why God has allowed him to stay out now these 2,000 years on bail, but I think i got to seek sufficient because God does all things according to his good pleasure. And God is going to use the devil to be sandpaper and chisel and whatever in my life and in your life to make us more like Jesus. And it could be the very thing that's going to smack the devil in the face is when we stand before Christ at the great judgment. That is what we call not the not the last judgment, but when we at the at the judgment seat of Christ, that Satan was used to make so many Christians just like the Jesus he hated. Wouldn't that just be judgment on the devil? So God, if God could not use Satan now. He would kill him immediately and send him to hell. He'd take every breath from his lungs. If he has lungs, he'd take it from him. So there's a reason why God has left him in the world. But when I think of all my enemies, I think of the world. We sang the song, faith is the victory that overcomes the... Sin has been defeated. Self has been crucified. Death Death is a defeated foe. Every time we bury a loved one, we go to that cemetery, and we tell that grave... You can't have him. You can't have her just for this season. But you don't own this child. You don't own my dad, my mom. You don't own my loved one. They're not going to stay here long. (laughs) One day they're coming out. Amen. Death has been defeated. The doors of hell have been shut. So which came first? And here's my last point. How many of you can say amen to a last point? Thank you, Brother Dan. I appreciate that strong amen coming from the back. I'm getting some foul winds from the choir behind me here. Which came first? Our need or his full and plenteous supply. Which came first? Mm, let's read it together. Philippians four nineteen. Come on, let's all say it. Ready? But my God shall supply all your need. According to His riches and glory, by Christ Jesus. If you ever had a need that God does not have a supply for, because of who He is, all sufficient, the I am that I am, the omniscient God, the all-powerful God, the omnipotent God. If God ever, if you ever had a need in your life that He doesn't already have the full supply for on hand, God would cease to be God. Charles Spurgeon said it in these terms: Our heavenly Father sees our need. And with divine foresight and love prepares the supply. It's already on hand. It's like a little girl. Father asked her the question. It's a little daughter. Honey, would you like to have a bicycle? She said, no, Daddy, I don't want a bicycle. Too many of my friends get hurt on bicycles. I don't want a bicycle. Well, little did little Sally know that Daddy, several months ago, had seen bicycles on sale at the store, and he bought his little girl a bicycle. And then he put it up in the attic, hoping that maybe either for a birthday or for Christmas or some special occasion, she'd want a bicycle. Well, Christmas came along. He said, Sally, uh, what would you like to have for Christmas? He said, maybe a bicycle? No, Daddy, I don't want a bicycle. No. Well, birthday came along, middle of the summer. Everybody's out riding their bicycles. And he said, Sally, what would you like to have for your birthday? Would you like to have a bicycle? Yeah, that sounds great, Daddy. I'd like to have a bicycle. So Daddy takes little Sally out in the garage, pulls down the stairs, walks up in the attic, and brings down a beautiful, brand new bicycle. And Sally has one of those Gomer Pyle moments where she just says, <laughs> "Go! Wow!" <coughs> I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry. <coughs> Got choked up on. Gomer Pyle. But anyway, daddy, daddy, how long have you had this up there? He said, Sally, I wanted you to have this a long time ago, but you had no need for it. But now that you have a need for it, I joyfully give it to you. See, life is God maneuvering, engineering, orchestrating, creating, Situations in our life that what we call needs or a need. God is behind it. And that need is to create a desire for you to flee to him who has in store the full supply of every need you will ever have. Paul had a need one day. He wanted to get rid of a thorn. Anybody ever have a thorn you want to get rid of? Of course, we don't. You say, "Hey, my mother-in-law lives with me." So I'm like, "No, no, no. I'm not talking about those kind of thorns." All right. Nobody laughed at that. So you must all have great relationship with your mother. I had a wonderful relationship with my mother. I didn't tell mother-in-law jokes. I had a wonderful mother-in-law. But a thorn in the flesh. Now, a thorn in the flesh. That's more than just having somebody living with you that you yet you don't enjoy living with. But a thorn in the flesh. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. How many times did Paul ask God to remove the thorn? How many times? Three times. He kept saying, God, you've got to get rid of this. You got to get rid of this. You got to get rid of this. God said, No, no, no. Every time he said, no, 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 no. And what did God? What did God do? God moved Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Well, he moved him into a sea. No, in an ocean of grace. Such an ocean of grace. As he was just, as he was just bathing in this ocean of grace, he said, God. I would rather now glory in my infirmities, glory in my pain and problems, glory in this thorn, that the power of Christ may settle upon me. Oh, I have never reached a point where I glory in my infirmities. In other words, you welcome everything that humbles you. If it's something that will humble you, welcome it with open arms because it's taking you into a supply that you have never enjoyed before, that you've never experienced before, that you've never bathed in before. Give him glory for every problem. And that's why James says, when you're in trouble, kick up your heels, have a party, throw a celebration, count it all joy. When you come into diverse temptations, troubles and problems, Have a party. Amen. Anybody had a party lately over all your troubles? That's why we're supposed to rejoice, because it's taking us into a supply that we've never, ever enjoyed before. Can anybody just say, well, amen to that? All right. All right. Are we still together? Okay. All right. I've only got about 45 minutes left here, so let me. No, no, no. I'm going to, we're going to wrap it up. We're going to wrap it up. I love this, I love this, I love this about the Bible, <clears throat> supply and need, <laughs> the story, you remember the little song, hey kids, you remember the song, Zacchaeus was a, oh thanks, thanks kids, I appreciate, I appreciate all the kids <laughs> answering that question, uh, y'all a child of heart, aren't you, Okay. Think, think, think about this. And I know this is crazy. This is kind of the way a little kid like me thinks. You know, Joan thinks when I got 11 years old, I stopped growing. I'm a prenatal boy. So anybody, any of the ladies have a husband that never grew up? The only difference? Okay, thank you, pastor's wife here. The only difference between a man and a boy is the price of his toys. Okay. So here's Zacchaeus, and he's wanting to see Jesus. And he's ripped off everybody in town. Everybody knows he's the biggest crook in town. He's ripped everybody off, but he's got a desire. Something's going on in his heart. God's creating a need in his heart. And he's got a sneaking suspicion that that need can be supplied and fulfilled in Jesus. So what does he do? He climbs up a what? He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And the Lord said, Zacchaeus, you come Answer this, all right? You come down, the Lord, going to your house today, He's going to be your house. So, you know what? You want to get out of that story? 40, 50, 60 years ago, God put it in the heart of somebody to plant a sycamore tree on that road. Because He knew that somewhere down along the way, He had a little guy named Zacchaeus who really would need to get to Him to get saved. And so He planted the tree in advance. So, Zacchaeus could get saved. So, don't ever think that all things, maybe by chance or circumstance, or maybe some things, no, all things have the potential to work together for good in our lives. Amen? Even sycamore trees, even bicycles up in an attic. God's just waiting for you and I. You see, Abraham and Isaac, great trial, going up Mount Moriah. I've stood on that mountain, what an experience. Going up to Mount Moriah, there he's going to sacrifice Isaac. The altar is prepared. Isaac said, Well, where's the sacrifice? The Lord will prepare himself a sacrifice, Isaac. You just lay down, strapped him down. Isaac didn't fight. He raises the knife, begins to plunge the knife into Isaac's heart. The Lord speaks, Abraham, Abraham! He you holds your hand, Abraham, Abraham! He said, Yes, well, Lord, and Abraham hears behind him a ram who is now groaning and making some commotion. And he, he sees the ram caught in the thicket of the, of, of the bush. And he says, go to the ram and bring the ram and sacrifice. Now I, I see that you now fear me. But this is my substitutionary sacrifice right here. Bring the ram laid on the altar. Now, that's a beautiful story of obedience and faith and love and all that. But here's the beauty of the story. As Abraham was walking up one side of the mountain, preparing to sacrifice his son, what Abraham did not see with the eyes of faith, he did not see, on the backside of that mountain was a ram quietly climbing the top of that mountain. And quietly, and God sovereignly guided and governed that ram to get thought quietly in in thickets, in thorns, like Christ whose head was, was crowned with thorns, and he gets his head caught in the thickets. And God supplied the sacrifice. And that's why Abraham said, I'm going to call this place from now on. This place shall be called Jehovah Jireh. For the Lord who foresees and supplies every need. The Lord has provided his sacrifice. So that's the way it is all in life. You can see every story. You can see this throughout the entire Bible. Joseph and Jacob. Remember the story? Seven years of famine, seven years of plenty. Seven years of plenty, I should say, seven years of famine. God has a need to get Jacob and his sons to Joseph and to to, to, for their survival and to bless them and also to reconcile the brothers with Joseph. And so, what happened? God created a need. What was the need that God created to bring Joseph and his brothers and his fathers together? The need was he created a famine he orchestrated he 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 created a famine in the land for the sole purpose that Jacob and his boys could move to Jacob could move to Egypt and move into the full supply that was already in Egypt it was already there 7 years in advance so what am i saying simply this don't curse the famine the famine is just the vehicle whatever the problem is don't curse the problem. Say, all right, God, I, I, Lord, I know you're up to something. You're up to something here. This is just the vehicle. This is just the means that you're moving me into a higher level of faith, moving me into a deeper level with Christ. You're moving me somewhere where I've never been before spiritually. I'm not going to curse the problem. I'm going to give you thanks for it because I know that our God shall supply all our need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus because I know if I don't have a need... I'll never get the supply. So, Lord, I don't want to curse the need. I don't want to curse the problem. I just want to rejoice that you're taking me somewhere that's going to be really, really good. Amen. So, last point. Yes, yes, I got, you, like, you like that word? Last point. Oh, right, here it is. Last point. Thanking God. Thanking God after blessings is gratitude. But thanking God in advance is what? last point to praise and give thanks to God before the blessing before the blessings have come or the victory is won is the highest expression of faith so what, what am I saying I'm saying this a few years ago I took this to heart and I just began to thank God in advance for saving all of my grandchildren. You say, you don't ask God to save them? Yeah, I did. I did, and I've committed them. But then I begin to thank God because the Bible is so, so clear that he doesn't just want you and I to be saved. He wants our whole household to be saved, to bless down from generation to generation to generation. And so this morning, probably right about now, quarter after 12, our 16-year-old grandson, is going down in the waters of baptism today. Five are in faith. We have one yet remaining, a 14-year-old. We're we're believing God for. Hey, thank God. We're thanking God for Landon's baptism soon or whenever whenever he chooses. Thanking God for. Stop asking. There's nothing wrong with asking, but just start thanking him because he's not willing that any perish. Take the promise to him and say, Lord, this is what you said. And this is your heart and I want to join your heart. And I don't want to displease you because I know without faith it's impossible to please you and you love those who express and exhibit faith in you and you alone. So I'm gonna give you this. And so one of the brother brother Dan, one of the one of the most blessed, blessed series I've ever preached in our church. Outside of the attributes of God. I did a series called the Twenty One Days of Twenty One Days of Praise. I took it from Psalm one nineteen, where David said, Seven times a day I will praise you. And I challenged the church for twenty. I say if you do something for twenty one days, what happens? It becomes a habit. So I said, We're gonna go twenty one days, we're gonna preach we're gonna preach these twenty one days, twenty one days of praise. David said seven times a day I praise. So try to take that passage and seven times a day do they for anything, just going a quarantine of praise. And it was a remarkable, the testimonies that came out of that little sermon series. Unbelievable. People's faith rose to levels. God began to answer prayer like we had never seen before. So, here's what I'm challenging you right now. Let's begin to thank God for the people that are coming to Calvary Baptist Church. Any takers? Anybody going to join me? Let's begin to thank God right now for the people whose lives are going to be changed during this revival in April whose hearts are going to be open, whose lives are going to be challenged and changed and even converted. Can we can we thank God for that right now in advance? You think that would you think that's presumption? No, that's faith. There's a difference. So let's begin to do that. Let's thank him. Let's thank him for that. Let's pray. You know somebody right now? Say God give me grace the grace of faith, to believe for their salvation. I don't see it. I don't sense it. There's no evidence. But you brought a ram but the backside of the mountain that Abraham didn't see. And you put a supply, and you put Joseph in an Egypt that Jacob didn't see. And you put a bicycle in an attic, that little Sally. And you put a sycamore tree that Zacchaeus had no idea was going to be there have a way of supplying needs, of supplying our every need. And even when it comes to the salvation of those who we love, you can do that, Father. You can do that. You you see that in advance. And so we're just going to join with you. We're not practicing word, faith, and power and all of that gobbledygook. We're just going to take you at your promise, your word, that it is true. You don't lie. We're going to trust you for the outcome of this revival and of this church and its future. As I close, this was the last sermon I preached. I encourage them to start thanking God for their next pastor. Don't pray about a next pastor. Thank God for your next pastor. You can pray about it. How much faith is there just to thank him after the pastor comes why not thank him in advance before he comes gratitude is thanking God after the fact and even an atheist can thank God after a blessing comes well atheists don't thank God but an atheist can give thanks after he gets blessed God's people thank him in advance before the blessing ever comes and when there's no evidence and there's nothing but tr- tribulation in the midst, we can still thank him and believe him. If you want to do that this morning, join me in prayer before we close. I'm going, to, I'm going to go right over here to the right, and I'm going to ask God to give this church a level of faith that they've never had before, take you on higher planes, higher grounds. I know it's late, and I apologize for that. But we so want you as dear people to enter into the, to the power of and blessing of God, the Holy Spirit. So give him an offering of praise today. Will you do that? Give him an offering of praise. Father, we thank you that, we thank you that when Paul and Silas was in that prison, they began to sing praises. <laughs> and then the doors flew open. And I've often thought, Father, what would it have been like if Paul and Silas had just waited till the doors came open and the jailer got saved and then said, oh, by the way, God, thank you. Thank you for saving them. Thank you for getting us out of jail. No, no, no. you. You put a song in their heart while they were in prison, in the bonds, in suffering. And you opened those jail doors. And, Father, through our praises, our high praises in this assembly, open up prison doors, we pray, and save the lost in Jesus' name. If you want to come and pray, come and pray.
0: The invitation's been given. I encourage you to step out from your seat and pray. Come forward and pray. Ask the Lord to work. We've heard the word preached. Faith is choosing ahead of time. I'm going to come to church next week to get blessed. By faith, I'm going to believe God to speak to me. We've got a revival meeting coming up. By faith, I'm going to be there because, and I'm going to invite, because by faith, I believe God to work. See, faith doesn't wait till the meeting to see if we like it. Faith decides ahead of time, I'm going to be there. Faith decides ahead of time, I'm going to trust and depend upon God. Would you step out in faith this morning? Would you come and ask the Lord to work in your heart?